Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you have your Bibles with you, we will have the words and verses up on the screen, but it would love for you to have the Bible in front of you. It may take you a moment to find the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I wanted to let you know we are, uh, the leaders of this church are in the middle of what we are calling a 21-day discipleship plunge. Uh, we are one-third of the way through that, so we're a week into this three-week effort. It is uh, three weeks that we're just going deeper into Jesus together. We're committing to some pretty intense spiritual disciplines of every day, spending time in silence, repentance, gratitude, reading a gospel. We've committed to fasting a few days over the next few weeks. This is a time for the leaders of this church to center our hearts and our minds on God. For some of us, it may be a reset, just making sure our focus is in the right direction. Uh, because we need to realize as a church that leaders of a church are not just called to care for people. We're called to be men and women of God, men and women who want to become what we're, what we're trying to lead people to become. So I want to ask the church and invite you to be praying over the leaders of the church during these three weeks. We have 19, I think 19 elders in this church, seven full-time ministers, two office staff who are joining us on this journey. So just over 25 people who are focusing for 21 days on spiritual disciplines in this communal journey, just to remind ourselves what this is all about. So please be in prayer over us. For every member of the Sycamore View Church, you should know who your personal shepherd is, and I want to encourage you to reach out to pray for them, to encourage them over these three weeks, just for persistent, that we will be persistent and consistent to what it is God wants to do with us. We called this uh, sermon series, this teaching series, it's a four-week series called The Plunge. And, and this was supposed to coincide with a number of other efforts happening in the month of August where we were planning to expand children's ministry offerings and adult faith offerings. And, and, and we have hit pause on some of those because of COVID. They will happen. They're just not going to happen right now. But there are some things we're still inviting you into. The whole idea of The Plunge is just thinking about what is that next step for you in life and in your faith. And for some of you, it may be a step into baptism. It may be a step into relationship to Jesus. For some of you, it may be, what, just what is that next step in your prayer life, in your, your life of service, in your life with God, your life in community? What, what is it? What is that next step for you? I know uh, I, I took, my parents put me in swim lessons uh, years ago. I, I learned to swim unlike my grandfather, and I don't know if he embellished this story, but my granddad said he learned to swim, and, and my grandfather grew up way out in the piney woods of East Texas. He said he learned to swim by his brothers taking him out in the lake, and they just threw him in the water, and, and it was basically swim or die. That's how he learned to swim. My parents didn't do that to me. They put me in swim lessons, and the climax, the last day of swim lessons is we, we jumped off the diving board. Like, that was it. Like, you, you graduate from this by going off the diving board. It was only a five-foot diving board, so it wasn't that high. But when you were afraid, as I was in this moment, uh, I didn't know if this was for me. Now, I remember my mom, had, she had bought me this uh, Superman Speedo at the time. So it was Superman Speedo, and there I was on the diving board, instructor in the water. So she was there to catch me. Yet I still was just standing on the edge, not sure if I, if I wanted to make this jump, if I wanted to graduate from swim lessons. And I'll never forget my mom on the side cheering me on. She's like, Josh, you got this. You're 16 years old. You can do this. You can do this. And, and I, I was really, I think I was three years old, maybe four at the time, all right? So I don't want you to have the image of the Superman Speedo, all right? But I was there, three, four years old on the diving board. My mom was cheering me on, and finally I jumped. And maybe you're deathly afraid of water, like this isn't for you, like swimming's not for you, so it may not be the best way to talk about faith. 
And for some of you, maybe what you need is this an idea of a plunge. Like it is time for you just to jump and to surrender to all it is God has in store for you. And for some of you, it may just be a step into the water. Somehow, some way, like what is that next step for you in your life? So Ezekiel 47, and though we're going to be in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel chapter 47, is, it's up on these vision banners that we have, and there's this vision that God gave Ezekiel. And in this vision, the focus of the vision is that your eyes are focused on the temple. Your eyes are focused on, on God, and it's from God that restoration and fruit is going to go to the entire world. The focus is, on, is not on the fruit, hoping that somehow it brings you to God. The focus is on God and from God comes this rushing river that everyone is invited to be a part of. It starts out ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then there's this rushing river that it's too high for anyone to cross or anyone to swim in. And right now, you may be thinking you're ankle deep in your faith, and you wish you were knee deep or waist deep at this point in your life. Wherever you may be, just know God is inviting you just a little deeper, a little further. So next Sunday, August 29th, we're calling this Baptism Sunday. And we've done these multiple times over the last few years where we just highlight a Sunday, we pray toward a Sunday. And not that, I mean, we're a church. We will baptize somebody anytime somebody feels the calling of God to enter into the water. But we know that for some people, it takes circling a date on a calendar and then working toward that date. And we're asking God next Sunday, for people to step into the waters. And, and we look forward to what next Sunday may do. And we also trust that God is working in hearts. And maybe we won't see the fruit next Sunday, but we will see the fruit sometime soon. So join us in praying as we anticipate what God's going to do next Sunday. Today in Ezekiel chapter 36, and, uh, and, and I want to just kind of work us through this chapter. We've been in this, uh, this uh, book for about three weeks. And let me just remind you a couple of things about Ezekiel. Because I'm, I'm assuming most of us don't know Ezekiel very well. Ezekiel was a priest who was also a prophet. He cared about taking the hand of people and the hand of God and helping to connect them, helping to put them in relationship together. He was a prophet, and if you read most of Ezekiel, he didn't have a lot of friends because what he had to say didn't make a lot of friends. The people he's writing to, they're in exile, which means they have been taken away from home. This is away from their house. This is away from their businesses. This is away from the land that has been theirs for hundreds of years. This is away from the temple, which is where they thought, like, that is where they would go and connect to God. And now they're way over in exile. Now, exile wasn't exactly like Egypt. They weren't slaves. There wasn't that kind of oppression, but they were far away from home. And now they're under a new king, and they have to decide... Are they still going to stay true to God, to Yahweh, or are they going to assimilate a little bit? Where they stay true to God, but when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the new king, asked them to bow a knee, are they going to bow a knee? And if you are in exile, you're probably thinking a few things. One is, can I still trust God? Like, where is God in all of this? Now, we're away from home, away from everything we've ever known, and there also may be a little bit of guilt because they knew that it was because of their disobedience that they did not hold up their end of the covenant with God that has now sent them into exile. And here God comes in Ezekiel 36. And God's going to start talking about a rebuild, about restoration and redemption. Now, Ezekiel 36, uh, I just want to remind you, the book of Ezekiel was written over about a 20-year period of time. So this wasn't like Ezekiel was given a, a writing break and he went and within two to three weeks he, he wrote and produced what, is the, what we now have is 48 chapters of the book of Ezekiel. This was written over 20 years where visions and sermons and oracles kept coming to Ezekiel and he kept speaking them. 
And either he was writing them down or people were writing them down for him. So over a period of time, and and now we're coming toward the end of the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, we start hearing about a rebuild where God says, like God's going to take a risk. God keeps risking with people. Knowing that when God risks with people, some people may be faithful to that, and some people aren't going to be faithful. And here's what it says, Ezekiel 36, verse 8. But you mountains of Israel, and the way God's going to talk about this is God's like talking to the land. The land is going to be restored. The mountains of Israel, you will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they, for they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you and will look out or look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will cause many people to live on you. Yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of people and animals living on you and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now this prophecy is being given to people at a time when they were still over 30 years away from reaping the benefits of this prophecy. They're receiving a promise of God that there is a rebuild on its way, but this isn't coming next week. Like, there's a rebuild on its way, restoration on its way, but we're still talking about decades later where many people receiving the prophecy weren't going to reap the fruit of it. Maybe their kids will or their kids' kids will. So how hard is it for you to cling to the future hope when you're living in the midst of chaos? Where Ezekiel is giving them a future promise to hold on to, yet they're in the middle of a storm. Ezekiel's telling them there's a future hope, a future promise, and here's what God's going to do. There is a rebuild on its way, but right now, exile's going to be your future, at least for a little while. And then God makes it abundantly clear that this whole rebuild is because of the glory of my name. This whole rebuild is so that the name of God can be held up. In verse 16, uh, it's a reminder of the idolatry that many people had set up in their lives. And here's what it says. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And whenever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them. And this is what other people were saying, like outsiders are saying this. These are the Lord's people, and yet they have had to leave his land. Like these are God's people, yet they're not even able to stay in the land that is known to be God's, including the temple. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. This was God's way of saying, like, everywhere you went, you didn't take my name seriously. Like, you, you kept my name on your lips just enough to appease me, thinking you were appeasing me, while going about living your own life. Like, you would surrender or bow your knee to me when it came to offering sacrifices in the temple, but then you would bow your knee and give your heart to all these other idols everywhere else you lived. So for them... Their way of life, their disobedience to God had become a roadblock, had become an obstacle, it had become like a pothole that was getting in the way of them having this, this road and this path to God. Hey, we live in Memphis. We know all about potholes, right? All about potholes. How many of you ever hit a pothole and you had some damage you had to pay for, right? Bust a tire or something happened? Right? And we're Memphis, so we don't do things halfway, right? If we go, we're going to go big. So if we do potholes, we're going to do potholes right. We're going to go big. And maybe the potholes in Memphis, it's God's wrath on all the awful Memphis drivers we have, right? 
And I don't know if you've ever been down a road that looks like this. And maybe some of you this morning, like it felt like this, like on, on the way to church. Did you know Americans spend over $3 billion a year because of potholes? So let me uh, put a little quiz and test in front of you real quick. Let's just see how we do, all right? If you throw up this next image. Here's the potholes that are filled in the city of Memphis every year. And I gave you four different options, A through D. So option one is going to be 986, option two, 7,884, option three, 27,361, option four, 53,961. So if you take 365 days a year, the first one means that on average there are three potholes filled every single day in the city of Memphis. If you take the option D, it means over 150 potholes are filled every day in the city of Memphis, and then the two in between are somewhere in between three and 150. You got it? Let's just see a show of hands. How many of you think it's option A, 986? How many of you would say option B, 7,884? Just a show of hands. How about option C, which some of you multiple choice, like you always go with C, right? 27,361. How about D, 53,961? And how many of you didn't lift a hand because you were told to never lift a hand in a church, right? Anybody? Anybody, right? So, so you know who I'm talking about. And the answer is D. Over 50,000 potholes filled in Memphis every year. Now here's the deal with potholes, all right? Is that whenever there is one, a construction crew comes out to inspect the hole to see what caused it. And most potholes in Memphis are caused by inclement weather. So there's, uh, there's water that seeps into the pavement, then we get a freeze, and then it expands, and boom, you got a pothole. And when this happens, they're very easy to fix. It's just a matter of filling up the hole. You take Oreo cookies, you smash them up, you put them in the hole, right? That's how we do things in Memphis. But every pothole in our city isn't caused by inclement weather. Sometimes when they inspect them, what they find is that there was a sewage leak underneath or there's some kind of water leak underneath the ground. So these are those moments when they can't just fill up a hole because just to fill in the hole when there's something else maybe lying way down underneath makes things worse. This is how you get sinkholes, which is going to cause a lot more damage than just having a tire that blows. So what they have to figure out is, if there's something underneath, this is when sometimes there are potholes in your neighborhood and they like dig up your entire neighborhood because they got to fix something that's underneath. So we live in a world today where many of us like quick fixes. So when there seems like there's a pothole in life, when there's some kind of obstacle or roadblock in life, we just want to fill it at the top without assessing maybe there's damage way down below that we need to see if it's there. And if so, do we, are we willing to make the sacrifices it takes to correctly take care of this, to the time? Sometimes it takes money. So sometimes what we want to do is look really good on the surface when what we need is for God to take us way down below to see that there's an idol we have created in our lives that we've let take over too much of our heart. There's an emotion that we have allowed to take hold of us. And sometimes it's a matter of going way down deep for the people that Ezekiel is writing to. I think they thought it was just a small little problem and just going to a temple and offering the right sacrifices would take care of it. When God is wanting to reveal to them what's going on among the people of God is so much deeper than a little bitty pothole. There's something going on way down underneath. So what God's going to start talking about is he provides this hope about a rebuild and restoration and redemption is that we're in need of heart change. 
that God's not just interested in taking physical bodies out of exile into a new land. God wants to rebuild a heart in order to prepare people to live in a land that has been rebuilt. But he needed people, and he still needs people, to take seriously the sin we allow in our lives. I came across this quote this past week, really messed with me. Let me place it in front of you just for a moment. It's this, sin is not just a failure to conform to a moral code, but a falling short of the glory of God. That what Ezekiel's trying to teach people is this isn't just about trying to follow a moral code. It's not just doing your, the right things right and not doing the wrong things. This is about living up to the name that God has given you. This is about honoring the glory of God, the name of the glory of God. So listen to verse 22. Because when God comes and God starts talking about a rebuild, here's what God does. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. It's for the sake of my holy name. Now, I, I taught last week that this isn't a moment where God's some narcissist, where God doesn't care about people and God doesn't care about the names of people. God knows that when the holy name of God is on the lips of his people and people are living in honor of that name, that everything is made better. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, verse 23, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I love this right here. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, like a heart that is moldable. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. What God lays in front of them is a promise that, hey, there's this future promise I have for you, but now I need you to commit to becoming the kind of people I need you to become for that new land. So this isn't just a matter of God wanting to transport people from exile back into freedom where there is a rebuild. It's God who's wanting to renew a broken heart, to renew and restore and rebuild a heart to prepare them for a land. Now I know there are leadership uh, CEOs and people in leadership who, who have put this, this statement, this like, leadership equation in their offices. Some of them on chalkboards, some of them printed out, and it's this right here. Events plus response equals outcome. E plus R equals O. And basically how this is taught is there are events in life, and sometimes you have no control over those events. Now, you do have control over your response to events. And the events that happen in life and your response to those events will determine the outcome. Now, there are a lot of different ways you could do this because you could also think there's an event that happened and what do I want the outcome to be and based on what you want the outcome to be needs to be your response to the event. So there are some events in life that have happened like a pandemic and there's social unrest and there's chaos throughout the world and you're going about your own life where there are events that have happened. And, and we could even talk about like some events are self-inflicted. Even the self-inflicted events ask a certain response to come from you where the outcome will be based on how you respond to those events. Is this making sense? 
So think about in the book of Ezekiel, where their events of disobedience to God has now led them into exile. So there are events that have put them where they are. And now what God is asking of them in exile is to respond to God in a way that is righteous, in a way that is moving to God because there is an outcome that God has for them of wanting to provide a rebuild for God's people. And play this out in your own life. Because some of you right now are in the middle of events that have happened in your life that, have, that, that may have uh, impacted your job, your mental state, your marriage, your relationships, and now you're in the process of trying to think through how you respond to the events in your life. And the outcome will be based on how you respond to those events. So God is asking His people then and today, respond to God by letting God renew a heart to prepare you for the future promises that are to come. And here's what God says. Here's how it goes in verse 32. It says this. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct. Like you've really messed up, people of Israel. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. And they will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. The promise that God has given his people is still decades away. And it's like God is asking them, will you stay true to a rebuild even if you aren't able to be a part of it? But your commitment to it means that your children or your grandchildren will. Like, they will reap benefits from your righteousness and your obedience. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Stockdale uh, Paradox. Anybody ever heard of this? Just a show of hands. Anybody? Jim Collins is a leadership guru. He's written a number of best-selling books on leadership. And he talks about the Stockdale Paradox. Where Jim Stockdale was the highest-ranking military officer who was placed in a prisoner of war camp during Vietnam. So Jim Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, spent eight years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, 1965 to 1973. For eight years, he had no prisoner's rights. There were no dates of even possible releases. Like, he had no certainty that he would ever get out. Eight years away from his wife, away from his family. And when he was released, he was connected to his family, and he and his wife would go on to write a book called In Love and War, in which they alternated chapter by chapter, where he would write a chapter and then she would, talking about what that decade of life was like, being separated from each other, her not knowing if if he was alive or if she would ever see him again, him writing in a very raw way what the experiences were like. He was tortured over 20 times. So they write this book, and then Jim Collins, who was writing a book on leadership, went and sat down with Admiral Stockdale just to hear the story again. Jim Collins had read his book, was aware of how it ended. Like, he knew that this guy survives, he gets out, and it was still such a raw conversation he had with him. And at one point, he just asked Admiral Stockdale, how did you survive? And here was a quote he had. He said this, I never lost faith 
in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. He said this, I want to repeat it. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. Jim Collins asked him, said, hey, I'm just curious, like who didn't get out? And Admiral Stockdale said, oh, man, that's easy. The optimists. And I know I'm not the only optimist in the house. He said, the optimists. And it kind of confused Jim Collins. So Collins followed up and said, what, why? Like, how the optimists? And, and Admiral Stockdale said, well, the optimists were those who in year one said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas came and Christmas went. And then they said, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. We're going to be out by Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving came, Thanksgiving would go. And he said, the optimists that I knew, they died, they died with a broken heart. And then he said, here is what helped him. And this has become the Stockdale paradox. This is used in leadership groups all over the place. And here it is. If you go to this next image right here. If you throw that next image up on the screen. There we go. All right. Is this right here, that you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties. And at the same time, you must confront the brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Now, he wasn't writing from a faith perspective, like some faith base, like trying to encourage a local church. So what we could do is we could say, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end. Like, we know how the story ends. I mean, Jesus wins. Death doesn't get the last word. COVID's not going to get the last word. Like, Jesus is victorious. So we know how the story ends. Regardless of any of the difficulties that you are facing in your life right now, we know how the story ends. But at the same time, we don't ignore all the other circumstances going in our on in our lives. We confront the brutal facts of our current reality, whatever they might be. But you're able to do that from a place of victory. Now, process this through the book of Ezekiel, where there's future hope and future promise and a rebuild that's given to the people of God, but they know, like, they're still living in the midst of exile and chaos, where they still have all this, like, current reality and circumstances that they are facing. And they are called to a life of faithfulness, righteousness, obedience, and after all these future promises and hope that God places in front of people, here's this one verse that I want to be how this teaching ends today. And in verse 37, here's what happens. Here's what God says. The Lord says this, I will also let the house of Israel ask me to do this for them. So God lays out what a rebuild and what redemption looks like. And then God, our loving God, says, here's, here's the deal. All right, I'm going to paint a picture of future hope, but then I want the people asked to ask me to do this for them. Jesus took this posture multiple times where Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And if God took this posture today with you, with us, and God said, look, here's this future promise, here's this rebuild, here's redemption that is in front of us. Now, here's the thing. What if God says, but I want you to ask me to do this for you. What would be your request to God today? Will you close your eyes and bow your heads?
And let's, just, let's pray together. God, we pray to the most holy name. As we pray to you, God, we ask for you to rebuild our hearts today. God, I pray for some people in this room who heard me talk about just potholes earlier. Like there's some, there's some people listening to me right now who need to take seriously what it means to get below the surface so that you can do some real heart work because we can't keep covering up the mess in our lives. And God, we just need to be honest with some of the requests that we lay before you. And I'm sure there's somebody listening to me right now that their request is, I just want one peaceful, restful night. Or I want anxiety to, to just, just one day without uh, anxiety attacks or, or just relationships just to be, to be made right. For kids to be held close to Jesus. And we just lay before you our honest request, believing that you are a loving father who receives and today, God, will you give us a new heart and a new spirit? And as hard as it is to pray sometimes, God, just have your way with us. For we know when you do, it's to make us healthier. I lift all this up in the power of your name.